Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's podcast is slightly shorter than many. At first, I was wondering why, but listening back just now, it's actually quite clear. Long conversations come about because there are complicated structures, products, and new ventures to explain. Or sometimes it's because the people I talk to say things that I'm not expecting them to say. And then we have to spend time clarifying exactly what they mean. With Trevor Carvey, CEO of Conduit Re, it isn't like that. First of all, Conduit was founded on the simple premise of being an uncomplicated, pure reinsurer. And that plan hasn't changed just because the market has. There are no new platforms or initiatives to dissect here. Conduit is staying true to its original business plan, although better than expected market conditions may allow the firm to execute that plan a little quicker than expected. And the relative brevity is also down to Trevor himself. He's concise and gets to the point and always answers questions head-on and in the most transparent and open way. It's refreshing, and this means that in a short time, you can learn an awful lot about the exact state of the reinsurance market and where the best opportunities currently lie within it. There's a lot of highly valuable detail and strategic insight in here, coming from someone whose experience is very difficult to match in the industry today. I highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Well, Trevor, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks very much. Uh, Nice to see you again. And well, the last time I saw you was in Monte Carlo, and you were making some quite strong predictions, as were most reinsurers. In fact, actually, to be fair, also reinsurance brokers, that there was going to be a harder market, there was going to be a market that was going to restructure. And it looks like you've done all of that, and you had a recent trading statement. In that statement, it was very positive, lots of growth. But one of the statements in that statement was from Neil. He said that you're well and truly through your startup phase. So if you're through your startup phase, tell us about what this next phase of Conduit Re's development is going to be. Okay. And it's kind of the question we often get asked, when does the startup phase come to a conclusion, then you move on? It's kind of a constant process. It never really ends, does it? I suppose you're always starting something. Yeah, that's right. And you're looking to refine the processes and practices that you put in place. And actually, I think we've spoken about this often in the business that in building the team, we're now getting off of 50 people, just over 50 people here in Bermuda. You have a number of avenues that you start off in your team with individuals, and you do need to take stock every now and then and just look at, are you going down the right route in the way that you're building the business? And we've done a number of what I think is the right kind of sort of half switches to realign the business as we've gone, but we've ended up in a really good space. Through the year, we wrote our billionth premium, I think it was. Oh, goodness. By the time we got through to July. And it's basically been built here. So for us from here on, it's really continuing to build out the platform from a tech standpoint as well. Everybody likes to talk about tech in our business, but reinsurance actually, I think, does need still some work to go in terms of data exchange, systems being able to talk to each other between reinsurers and clients and brokers. So we'll be doing more of that over the next yep. three years. And I think that basically just leads to doing more business in a more efficient manner and used to argue with that to a large extent benefits us all. And when you talk about exiting a startup phase, you don't suddenly mean that you're going to embark upon, if you say, we, or we've used reinsurance as the way of getting started up because it's a great way of getting premium in relatively quickly. And we're not going to suddenly see you go into ENS or Lloyd's or, or that kind of thing, you know, suddenly into specialty insurance or that kind of thing. You're going to stay pure. You're going to stick to that plan. The plan has always been to be a pure insurer. And that is the plan. You're just deepening and developing that line. 
Yeah, effectively, you described our view on the industry, certainly in our medium to longer term. You know, that's that's how we see it. We often get asked again about, you know, Lloyd's and the attractions of it. Well, Lloyd's is a great place to be for global licenses in the insurance business. That's not what we require, and it's not yeah. a platform that suits us. And I think there's an element of higher costs that goes with that in the insurance business generally, the platform build-out, but obviously also being regulated within Lloyd's environment is much higher level of operating expense as well. So for us here, the model being in Bermuda, being able to distribute very broadly, build a balanced portfolio and scalable with the level of cost that goes with that and the efficiencies here, it's not a bad place to be. And we don't have any plans to materially changing that. So you can keep it pure, have one operating centre, have one balance sheet, no complications. That's right, yeah. I mean, there are various ways of accessing and writing reinsurance treaty business, and we'll always keep an eye on that and other methods of doing that. But no, in the main, our core product offering will, will be the same, and I expect us to still be sitting here in five years, perhaps in a slightly larger office if we're <laughs> building out the teams, but no, we'll still be here. You say Bermuda's a really scalable place. You can scale a business many-fold from there. Given what you projected at Monte Carlo seems to probably have been exceeded. You were projecting, obviously, massive improvement for reinsurers. Has 1-1 turned out better than you expected first? And then does that mean you're going to accelerate some of those growth plans as a consequence? Yes. I mean, post-Ian, and also, I think, as the inflationary world continued to bite on back years, which obviously impacted the casualty as well, the whole repricing and re-rating of the classes has been experienced through Gen 1. So for us, that's been a good place to be because we're still growing into our skin and we're growing into our capital. So not having the back years to manage and to run with, we've been unencumbered by that, which is good. You're not having to do any reserve strengthening because we weren't on any of those years, I presume. That's right. You always keep an eye on development patterns, but I don't think we've got a lot to worry about at this stage. But no, so January renewal season was great for us. We have a pretty broad portfolio already. It's a large client base. All those renewals came through, lots of renegotiations on those, but in the main, prices and teasers, C's all working in reinsurers' favour. You know, and that's the supply-demand imbalance that everybody talks about, and that's very much the fore. So January for us was really about building on that renewal base, and then there was a significant amount of new business as well that was offered through, and that really is where the growth at Jan 1 came. But for us going forward, I think at that point about the hard market continuing the casualty inflation-related impact is here to stay. You see that all the way through now down into the client base, an awareness of the need to keep rate ahead of that inflationary trend. And in the main, I think the industry is still doing a good job of that. We see that. So that kind of just underscores the, I think we've used the word structural shift and a structural change for a number of years, I think, in just building that more reinsurer-friendly, shall we say, environment. So yeah, absolutely, we're looking to accelerate that. And if we can bring forward our year four and year five in our IPO plan closer to home now in our year three, then I think that will be a task well achieved. You're talking about growing into your skin. So it sounds like you haven't fully deployed all the capital that you raised initially yet, all those original commitments. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, capital for us is still plentiful relative to our size. And certainly looking at our five-year plan, we have more than enough to take us out through the end of that. And I think the way that the capital models work in the industry there's an overfocus on premium. Very often the premium is seen as the sole driver, but in a lot of the ways the models work and capital charges, sometimes it's no more than 50% is actually premium driven. And it's around your reserving risk and your credit risk and your investment risk. 
and they all add along with diversification to a blended capital charge. And that for us, because we're essentially not a monoline cat writer, obviously, and a diversified reinsurer, that actually all plays to the strengths of the capital adequacy model. So for us, no, feel very comfortable and we're still deploying. That sounds great. Nice place to be that you don't have to be out trying to get new investment. You can just get your head down and deal with what's in front of you. So in terms of when you're seeing things coming through, are you expecting this momentum at 1-1 to continue through the year? Because obviously we did have a bit of prior momentum in the mid-year renewals last year. Do you think it's all going to carry on? Do some of these raises and restructures are going to carry on as we go through the mid-year renewals as well? Or have we already done that? Was that already last year's debate? I think there's always an eye on the industry, isn't there? There's always a potential set of investors that are looking at the business. I think one thing, though, that was aware to us in building a rated carrier and going through all that capital raising in 2020, getting a rated carrier on the books through the regulatory and the rating agency approval is a long task. It's a long endeavour to take on. Yeah. But I think that a quicker way to market in the ILS space, probably the uptick in property cap rates, there's going to be some interest there, I think. And I think you can probably see some additional capacity coming in there. Do you think that might put a bit of a dampener on it? Presumably it's from a very theoretically well-rated place, one presumes. Certainly, certainly well-rated. And the gap in supply-demand capacity is still significant. If you look at that potential gap, then there's various figures that are being quoted. It would take an awful lot of new capital coming into the industry to have a material dent on that. And all the time we've seen it from our clients at Jam 1, the demand on the limits that they want to purchase is just going up at an increasing rate. You know, inflation led yep. index linked asset price inflation. Yeah, so new opportunities will be there for new capital, but there's a very, very heavy demand that's still driving prices at the core end. So you don't expect anything unstable to happen? No, I don't think so. There's a big focus on T's and C's too, terms and conditions. We saw that at Jam 1. We'll see that certainly through the mid-year and even the April. You know, we were sort of jumping to the middle of the year with the wind season, but there's a large amount of business that's due to renew in April. And we're already seeing, I think, a real resolve around attachment points, deductibles, event clauses, all that good, exciting stuff that we love to talk about. But it adds real value to the product. And that was a big part of rate change and rate improvement that we certainly saw at Jam 1. I suppose when we're thinking about 1st of April renewals, we're thinking about Asia. It was a bit of a shock to me to read some COVID losses coming through, perhaps ones that you wouldn't expect as a reinsurer to be covered, but something that you might have to cover, obviously, if you're following the fortunes of your sedent. Um, these are so-called deemed hospitalization COVID losses, and it's an aggregation of small health benefit claims where people actually weren't hospitalized, but the government, because they had to isolate for COVID and the government's local governments have decided that they should be able to claim on those health benefit policies. And of course, those are then aggregating to very large numbers because we're talking about millions of people. And then some of those were going to be funding the winter reinsurance. We certainly saw some reserving for that. Is that going to muddy the waters for those Asian renewals? I think it could do that we've seen an increasing trend over the last quarter away from Asia to name peril coverage. So that's been a reaffirmation of the need to stay abreast of terms and conditions. But just on a general level, it is a shock when lawmakers come out with decisions like this, but that's kind of the industry that we're in. You know, how you price for that, how you risk manage for that is always the challenge. It's a social contract, isn't it, ultimately? And we are ruled by the rule of law. And if the law says one thing, then we generally have to follow along with it. And hopefully we can get paid back, I suppose, is the only other thing. Yeah. And it just reaffirms the strength of 
building a reinsurance business that as one of my old bosses used to say, which I liked, was about betting the ranch. You don't bet the ranch. You don't take a position in any one region, any one territory or, or any one class of business, which really is exposing the volatility into the portfolio in a material way. So you can only manage it through taking measured bets and measured portfolio structures. That's probably a lesson we would take away from it. Right. Okay. Well, that just shows the benefits of proper global diversification. Yeah. Yeah. It was a shock to me because, of course, I'd always assumed that because the Asian market had had a dress rehearsal for COVID in SARS sort of eight, nine years before, and had already got a lot of those wordings much tighter than the European and the US market, particularly in contrast. And, and of course, yeah, it just shows that losses have different ways of finding their way into the insurance market by hook or by crook. But it was very, very interesting. So probably a good time you were talking about the ranch. What's the ranch looking like after 1-1? Because when you go through a big renewal where lots of things have changed, where you come off some things and you get on new things, you've thrown everything up and it's all landed in a slightly different place. And we can see from you that it was in a better place. Everything has landed in a more positive place than it was before then. But what's it looking like? How has it changed the balance of all your bets in aggregate? In aggregate, at a high level, it's brought more opportunity in from non-US a European business that we've spent the previous two renewal seasons, two years, looking at pricing up, putting it through the models, and then basically looking at it with some dismay that it just wasn't at the hurdle rate. And it wasn't getting taken up. No, that's now improved. That's come through. Some of them were coming from a very low base, but they have now come through and that's now a larger part of the portfolio. A bit more of a switch away from some of the pro rata into the Excel. Uh, that's just a natural progression. And the excess of loss, cat excess of loss particularly, has started, to our view, be more of a comparable allocation alongside some pro rata. So that's been there. And also then on some of the specialty classes, the emergence of the events post-Ukraine and Russia, the classes that well, I would say were problem classes that needed tidying up and cleaning up, that happened. And so we found ourselves being presented with more specialty opportunities that we could look at and come to grips with. There's still a lot that needs to move in some of those classes. But in the main, terms and conditions helped a lot in the specialty area. Focus from the industry on the need to improve and tighten up on event time and distance earnings. And that's all helped. So some of the specialty as well has, has come through. Yeah. So on the specialty side, so we were talking a lot about unbundling and a lot of those coverages put together into composite type treaties. Presumably a lot of those have been cracked open and are now a bouquet of different standalone things and obviously probably not sold as a bouquet. Is that what you're alluding to when you say that things have been cleaned up? Yes. Does it make it easier to underwrite? If you can see exactly what you're getting, you don't have to look at five different portfolios and take a view. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of embraces it, that it's the transparency that I think a reinsurer always looks for. You know, we don't mind a tough ask looking at a tough class of business, providing the data's there and you can form a measured objective view on it. That's the object of the exercise. Um, really, what was happening before was, as you say, call it a bouquet, several classes put in, limited data on a number of those, and regionals being asked to sort of go with the flow and trust trust to it come good. But as we know, so-called black swan events happen with recurring frequency these days, it seems. So, yet yeah, that unbundling did happen. And it's just, you know, we just welcome the transparency. Um, it wasn't by any means the panacea that solved all of the ills, but it enabled us to, with other reinsurers, at least take a step back and understand what was in there 
and some met our hurdle and, and some didn't. It was a step in the right direction, no doubt. So you've got these new opportunities. You mentioned about Europe, you've mentioned about the specialty classes in the post-Ukraine environment. Out of those opportunities, maybe others, what are the biggest ones, would you say? And you know, where are you thinking, right, I'm going to have to get tooled up, I'm going to have to hire some more people, I'm going to get ready for this in my planning this year and, and the next? The plan for us as we went into Jam 1 and we put together the strategy for this year and, and thereafter, I described it as really the preference and opportunity was property, specialty, then casualty. Think of it in those terms. And that's really where capital deployment, we still think, is the place to be weighted towards property, specialty, then casualty. It doesn't mean casualty is a bad bet. It just means that it's harder to find true new opportunities, I think, in the casualty space where the margin is still very attractive. It's a good place to be, but you want to be weighting more towards specialty and property. And in those classes, we know we're going to see CAT. CAT's going to come through massive demand. So that distribution, in a way, sort of takes care of itself. And we'll see that. And our capacity is sought after. But the work for us and where we're focusing on is what I call the non-CAT piece of that puzzle. So property non-CAT and specialty that doesn't drive CAT. And that's in a great margin place to be. We built a really good pipeline of business in that space over the last couple of years. Around about two-thirds of our business that we write in total in the business is not cat business. It's risk business, so it's fire business. And the margins now on that have really just now all got a bit better because pricing is up on the back of property cat, but it's pushing up the all-risk premium as well, the fire premium. So for us, that's a focus of attention that we want to be putting our efforts into over the course of certainly the next couple of years. And then we've got some initiatives that we're already starting work on now to broaden the distribution and to ensure that we can find those opportunities on that non-cat space. So that sort of cat tide has managed to lift all the ships. Yeah, exactly what it's done. Exactly. Yeah. And there's some really good opportunities in there. And if reinsurers is in business to be aware of the cycles, then that's exactly what we should be doing at this time. Of course, one, one, you're a buyer and a seller of reinsurance, and you had to have your own retro program. Your retro is very important when you're starting up to avoid any imbalances. How was that? You said in your recent trading statement that you were very satisfied you were to get that away. What was it about your program that was able to give those retro writers comfort? I mean, it was a very tough renewal for everybody, I presume. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think twofold, really. The retro that we buy as a couple of my colleagues remind me, on the world scale, is not life-changing. Yes, it's in the hundreds of millions, low hundreds of millions, but on the scale of things, that's not a massive program. And we have deliberately, when we put the panel together and work with them for 21 and then for 22, it's quite a large number of reinsurers that each participate, and we bring it together into the finished article. That then represents the program. When you come to renew it this year, they've all got different views. They all have a different place they want to be in, more more and less so in different areas of the program. And really, we make the effort to sit down with them and say, okay, where is your area that you particularly want to deploy capacity? How can we fit that into our plan? And that's how we put it together with the brokers involved. It's more working with them on a case-by-case basis. And in that way, it's quite hard yards doing it that way. But you establish, I think, a better chance of putting a product together with a reinsurer or retrocessionaire in this case that can stand the test of time. We have a lot of data exchange. There's no doubt about that. So there's a lot of data which goes to and fro. So I think they understand and they're updated through the year. And it's the acid test in a program like that is how does it respond to 
the events, be it the Ian, the Ida or the Burnt. And I think it's been described by several of our sessioners that we weren't a problem child for them. You know, yes, there were losses there, but they were what was expected and they weren't outliers. And I guess that's all you can really deliver as a buyer. You do what you say. And I think in that way, it gives it more chance of enduring through time. So that's what we did. And we just grew that program and it's pretty much in line with our original IPO. So in the grand scheme of things, you're not buying a limit that requires the whole market to participate or not. No. And presumably you're really only buying at the sort of capital protection level rather than earnings. Yeah, completely. We have the capital to run that net loss into. That's what it's there for in this market. And yeah, it just gives us the freedom to be able to buy for pure capital protection, which is what it should be. Yeah. And so coming out of that renewal, are you retaining more of your own cooking or is it balanced stayed about the same? Yeah. So we retain more, but it's actually, going back to our IPO plan, we had scaled the retention appetite through the five years. And it's pretty much around about where we thought it'd be for year three, year four. So retaining more dollars, but as a percentage of the premium and or the net asset value of the business, it's, it's around about where we expect it to be. And I'll take that in this market. I was just looking at my list of different ideas and questions for us to talk about. And it sounds like you know, you're very succinct, Trevor. I think we've spoken about almost everything. Perhaps I should give you an opportunity to give, have a bit of a passing shot to everybody listening, to the brokers out there listening, with all these renewals coming up and you know, this mid-year coming up. What's your message to everybody? Message, my word. And often you get put on a soapbox <laughs> like this at short notice. I think to bear in mind that the industry that we're in and the cycle we're in, nothing is really that new. The circumstances that create it are obviously uh, such as we've seen in 22 and new types of events, but the stresses it puts on the industry that we've been through and the industry has been through it before. So I think that in terms of as a broader marketplace, providing the transparency of data is there, it flows back and forth and conversations are had, there's a good chance that even though the reinsurance and insurance industry is always looked on from the capital markets as a bit of a conundrum at times and difficult to understand. But I think if that level of exchange is there within the industry, I said, I think we're in a pretty good place at the moment. And you're absolutely open for business. You've got capital ready to deploy, but obviously on your terms. Absolutely, yeah. And when we put the plan together, it's a five-year plan. And all you know, when you put a plan together, it never turns out exactly as you expect. But for us to be in this position where the market is at this point, it's a good place to be and be able to sort of grow into it is great for us. Would it be right to say that you're ahead of plan? Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think as we said, you know, we had a year two plan in year three and the market's in a better place. So we can accelerate that over the course of the next couple of years. Excellent. Trevor, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's odd that yeah, we were just chatting before we hit the record button that yeah, I can't believe that we're talking about Monte Carlo already. But yes, I'll put myself into your diary at Monte Carlo and we'll get you back on the reinsurance special program of 2023. And we'll catch up on everything that's happened in the mid-year. And I hope it goes really well for you. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your time. And yeah, as you say, I'm sure I'll speak to you before Monte Carlo. But yeah, good wishes to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. 
Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs> <laughs>